Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. We're nearing back to school time, and as students and parents stock up on supplies and squeeze in a last bit of summer fun, local school districts are facing one of the biggest assignments they've ever been given. They have a big opportunity. Local school boards have received a total of $3 billion in federal COVID-19 relief money to help students catch up. The question now is how to spend it. And that's not an easy question to answer. Learning loss from the pandemic is different in every district because every district approached the pandemic a little differently. Assistant Columbia Bureau Chief Shauna Adcox and education reporter Libby Stanford are here today to talk about what we know about how districts are planning to spend this funding and what's still unclear. This money could be transformative for South Carolina schools, but that depends on what's done with it. My name is Libby Stanford, and I'm the education reporter at The Post and Courier. I'm Shauna Adcox, Assistant Columbia Bureau Chief, which really means I cover the state house and politics, which often means education on the statewide level here in South Carolina. The amount of funding that we're talking about today is, is pretty unprecedented for South Carolina schools. So how much are we talking that schools are receiving in this federal COVID-19 aid? They're receiving a total of nearly $3 billion that actually is three different packages that Congress approved, with the latest one being by far the biggest of $1.9 billion. So when can all of this money be spent or when does it have to be spent by? It has to be allocated by September 2024. It's a possibility they could actually spend it through 2025. They are already receiving the money. They have been receiving the money since last year on a reimbursable basis. The latest money just became available several weeks ago. Has some of the money already been spent? As of June 30th, districts had spent total $142 million from the first round of funding, which was more than a year ago. They'd spent $10 million from the second round of funding from December and none from the third round yet because that is just becoming available. So who is deciding how this money gets spent? Solely the local school boards. Now, the Department of Education has an oversight role, mostly to make sure that it's being spent as per federal law allows, which is very broad, and to make sure that they're planning ahead, they're meeting benchmarks. But in terms of how it's being spent, that is a local decision. We often hear about, and the Post and Courier has reported a lot about, how South Carolina's schools struggle when it comes to having enough money. So let's just kind of put this $3 billion in funding into perspective. How does that compare to the amount of federal money that schools in South Carolina are typically getting? So normally they get about $1 billion in federal money for Title I, which is poor schools, for IDEA, children with disabilities, that kind of thing. In total, it normally is about $1 billion. So this is three times that. And on a regular annual basis, schools total get about $10 billion. And that's a combination of state, local, and federal. So how are school officials talking about this money, you know, given that this is three times that normal federal amount. What are people saying about the the potential for what can be done with it? 
So it, it's the opportunity to really be transformational. It, it, the hope is that we can finally do some of the things that have been talked about for years that, you know, we just didn't have the money to have. There's been a lot of criticism of, oh, we need more money for our schools. Well, now's your chance. Potentially, the hope is that this can really do a lot of good. The question, of course, though, is figuring out how to do a lot of good and, and how exactly to, to to spend the money and when. So, of course, schools do have until that 2024 date to, to allocate funds, but they've had to start coming up with some plans. And then they had a plan due in late May in an academic recovery plan. So what did those plans have to include? So the plans at the end of May were actually specifically required by the State Department as opposed to federally required of that big giant chunk that was the last round from Congress. They required that at least 20 percent of it go toward learning loss, which is the big you know, concern during the, during the pandemic. And basically, the State Department wanted districts to start thinking about how they're going to address that learning loss. They didn't have to attach any money to that plan that was due in late May. That was what they were supposed to address of, okay, how are we going to get the students from A to B? And what is their goal? What does that B look like? That will hopefully help them as they prepare their budgets that are federally required that are due next month. So uh, both of you looked through those plans and... I'm wondering, what was the general feeling after looking through those? Was there a lot of detail? Was there a lot of specificity in in those goals? What was your sense from reading through them? So honestly, from the outset, my intention was to go through the plans and group them. Okay, these districts intend to do X, Y, Z. These are going to, you know, sort of do a 50,000 foot article on what they were going to do in general. But as I started looking through them, that became absolutely impossible because they were A, all over the map, B, not all of them had been even submitted, or at least many of them had been returned, so they weren't public. And C, there was a lot of jargon in there. You couldn't really tell what some of the plans were. So I realized, okay, well, that's actually what the article should be about because these plans don't really tell me much. What were some things that that stuck out to you, Libby, as you were going through those those plans? Were there any recurring themes or recurring ideas or recurring jargon that was being put into those plans? One of the things I noticed the most was a focus on intervention and extended learning. So better summer camps and summer programs and extended after-school learning. But as Shauna said, a lot of the plans included a lot of, you know, education jargon that the everyday person might not fully relate to. And specifically, yeah, there were some plans that for larger districts that were kind of lacking lots of details, which I found interesting. And some of the reasons we heard for that was just wanting to be broad so they can add more later. So it's kind of, we have to wait and see what, what it'll look like in August. The biggest single commonality, I guess, was summer school. Most all that I saw anyway, had a summer school component. But in terms of saying it's robust, telling me it's robust doesn't tell me anything. There was no, okay, our plan is X, Y, Z. It's different because of this. It was just very general. Some of them, for example, said, oh, we're going to have Saturday academies. 
But then when I contacted the district, they're like, well, actually, we don't know that we're going to do that because we don't know how transportation would work and blah, blah, blah. So even things that seem to be specific were not, you know, when you'd contact them, it may not actually happen. So how did those first plans go? Because, as you said, those required by the State Department of Education and they had to review them. How many of those did they think were solid plans or at least met the requirements? So there's 79 traditional districts and they all met the deadline, I was told, but 21 of them were sent back as not good enough, essentially. They needed some work. They were told to resubmit by July 15th. This morning I got confirmation that all but one of them actually did meet that new deadline of July 15th. However, only one of those is posted online as approved. The rest of them are still under review. And bear in mind what is a good plan is, you know, if you look through the plans, it may or may not be discernible, you know, because it's all over the place, whether it's a good plan is what they call, you know, strong evidence or just kind of meets the basics, ranged from two goals to 11 goals. The one plan that was given to districts is here's a good example, was Pickens County and their goal for all of their different goals, was to get students back up to pre-pandemic levels within two years. There was nothing I saw that actually would get us to better than we were, which we we weren't in that great a shape to begin with. Some districts only said, okay, well, we'll increase performance yearly. Well, what does that mean? And, And that actually came from the largest district in the state, which is Greenville County. And some districts said, okay, we're going to increase basically children's ability to read well, by three percentage points. Does that really get you where you want to be? I would argue no. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the interesting questions with this is, like you said, that this amount of money, people say, can be transformative. But if we're only going back to pre-pandemic levels, then that's not where any school districts really want to be in South Carolina, right? If we were saying pre-pandemic that they needed more funding and needed to improve performance, were there any kind of bright spots in these reports of maybe some some goals or some ideas that did rise to a, a better level of specificity or maybe were some goals that were setting the expectations a little bit higher? In terms of setting expectations higher, I'd argue no, at least not at an initial look of it. And to their defense, you know, I go back to they were told to be reasonable and measurable, and they might have been being very cautious, probably overly cautious. But on the flip side of that, you know, you're not supposed to have low expectations for your students. If you set low expectations, you're going to get low expectations. I mean, but there were some specific things that seemed promising. Certain districts specifically said we're going to increase access to 4K and start access to 3K, or we're going to put more teachers into the early years, which is promising, assuming that they can actually hire the teachers to do so. If they do those Saturday academies, that'll be interesting. Some districts said we will do before school or after school, but again, those details are yet to be worked out. You brought up the issue of school districts needing to hire teachers, how realistic do we think that might be given that teachers had a very difficult year 
during COVID. Have any of the districts spoken to that, to the challenges of finding people willing to teach? You know, not only are they exhausted, but we're already in a teacher shortage crisis, which has certainly not improved during the pandemic. And we'll hopefully see numbers on that soon in terms of how many teachers they were able to hire over the summer. It could come down to money. One of the more interesting things that some of the schools districts started doing was paying teachers more. They had to, to get teachers to commit to a summer school and give up their summer. So Anderson 5 and Charleston County both were offering $60 an hour. For Anderson 5, because of the length of its program, that meant their teachers could make an extra $10,000 over the summer. For a young teacher, that's that's a good chunk of change. Like you said earlier, these funds, they don't have to entirely be spent on catching students up from the pandemic. It's 20%, is that right, has to be spent on learning loss. Can you explain a little bit more of that? And then if only 20% has to be spent on that, what could that other 80% go toward? The latest spending package from Congress, the American Recovery Act, that was the one that offered the biggest chunk. And it specified that at least 20% of their money, which of that chunk was $1.9 billion directly two school districts on top of what the State Department can keep must go toward learning loss. There's a list of supposedly 15 items of what the money can be spent on, but each of those 15 items is broad. So they can probably put just about anything in there. And it includes PPE, safety devices for the classrooms amid the pandemic. It includes anything that would be considered programs for Title I students, IDEA, homeless students. It can be construction. It can be repairing or replacing HVAC systems so that their in-classroom air is basically better. There is a wide range of what can go into that. When it comes to that that learning loss issue, what are some of the specifics that districts may need to address? Do we know if it's certain subjects more than others, you know, reading or, or math? Are there any more specifics on what exactly districts need to tackle when we say learning loss from COVID? Exactly how much each district has fallen back, we don't know. Each district took assessments that they have the figures to, and they were supposed to use their own assessments to make those goals. But we don't know publicly, you know, what those actually say. We do know on a state level that we're talking about pre-pandemic, we were actually at less than half of third through eighth graders performed on grade level in math and reading. And that's fallen to an estimated 30% this year. So go back to those districts that are talking about they want to improve by five percentage points. On a state level, we've fallen from half to 30 percent doing well. The other thing is some districts are more behind than others because of the way that they taught over the last year. There are about 15 districts who offered the full five-day-a-week in-classroom option. And there were some, you know, the last few came back in April, essentially. Even in districts that offered the full five days a week, they also offered a virtual. Within the district, there's going to be wide disparities of where kids are because they've shown that kids in virtual did not do as well. Hi, I'm Jennifer Barry Haas, a reporter from The Post and Courier. 
Working as a local reporter, I found that we can cover national stories in a way that reporters who come in from New York or DC or Atlanta simply cannot. We've lived in the community, we have contacts in the community, we've raised children here, we own houses here. We can bring perspectives that somebody coming in from the outside simply cannot. When stories come up, we know who to contact to find out what's going on. We understand the impact that it has on people who live here because we live here as well. That's why the local perspective that we provide is so important. Learn more at postandcourier.com slash subscribe. Libby, you've been following along with what Charleston area schools are planning to do with their funds. So let's look at Charleston County uh, and some of the specifics there. So what have they already spent some of their COVID relief money on? Like we said, schools have received this in a few rounds of funding and have already have some of those dollars and have spent them. So how was that spent in Charleston County? Like many schools, Charleston County used the first package of funding to pay for things like air quality, plexiglass barriers, masks for teachers, hand sanitizer, those those things that were essential at the beginning of the pandemic to kind of get schools open and running in a safe way. Now, since they've gotten more funding, they're kind of shifting gears to focus on the learning loss aspect. So with the second package of funding, they use a large chunk of that to go towards their summer program. They had about 5,000 students sign up for that program, which is a record for the district and how many people they've had in those programs before. So they really focused that second package on that program. And then in terms of the third package, they're looking to still kind of invest in summer programs and after school. They're also looking to have a teacher residency program to have more teachers in the classroom. So there's a program to have college students who are looking to become teachers work with already established teachers in classrooms with younger kids so that those kids can have more one-on-one instruction and have kind of more eyes on them as they go throughout the day. So those are some of the things that they've identified, but they're definitely still looking for more feedback to figure out what they want to use the money on. The district also sent out a survey, right, to parents to kind of gauge what they want to see some of this funding spent on. So what came out of that survey? Were there common themes in the answers that parents were giving? Every school district was required to get public input in their plans for this third round of funding. And so they're doing that through a variety of ways. In Charleston County and Dorchester and Berkeley, they all had surveys. And so for Charleston, at least, the survey results show that parents were really focusing on six key areas. Those include mental health services and support, activities to address the needs of low-income students and impacted subgroups. So that means like students with disabilities, students who are like English as a second language, those kinds of students. Addressing learning loss among students, summer learning and supplemental after school, educational technology for students, and then improving indoor air quality in schools. So you can see that really the community is focused on mostly learning loss issues compared to the, you know, typical improvements to buildings or things like that that could happen. And then they've also, just this week, at least in Charleston County, started having a couple of town halls where people could, more open format, come and and say what they think about the plans. And the first was Tuesday, July 20th. Was there anything interesting that came out of that meeting that parents were saying? I'm sure that parents are pretty dialed in, you know, on what's going to happen with this amount of funding going into their kids' schools. 
It was held at Ellington Elementary, which is in Ravenel. So there was a lot of presence from kind of the rural community and the rural parts of the district. One of the big things that those parents and those community members emphasized was a need for better reading and math intervention in those rural schools. Programs like Head Start, which is an early childhood program to be added to those schools. They're also pushing for just better upgrades to their buildings because those are older buildings that haven't seen much renovation recently while a lot of schools within the city limit get to see lots of updates all the time. So it was really kind of a push for more of a focus on the rural area students. Another huge thing that I've noticed is a lot of emphasis on what's called social emotional learning and that can include mental health supports. It's also including you know teaching students how to work with others and I think there are some parents that are really concerned after this year of masks and for some people virtual learning that their kids kind of set back in a social way. So there's really a push for that kind of education and that kind of support. Yeah, there are just so many different elements at play here, right? That this funding is a big opportunity, but it's also a lot of decisions that that have to be made. And like we've said, so much variation between districts of learning loss and where that is, but even variation within the districts, since each individual student and parent could make their own decisions about what they wanted to do during the pandemic in terms of their learning. So with all of this in mind, what's next for y'all on reporting about this and reporting about this funding. What are you looking for next in terms of following along with this and seeing how effectively districts are able to use this money? In a month, they're supposed to turn in their budgeting. So what will that look like? And kind of like these academic plans, I'm guessing they're not all going to make it in on time or at least not approved in time. But we'll see. We'll see what they have in mind. And also to districts defense, you know, planning fatigue. They may have been a little lackadaisical on developing specifics for those plans because they've just been bombarded over the last year with planning this or that or submitting this or that for federal or state purposes. That could be another reason why they lack specifics. I will be looking into kind of the impact summer school had on these students, especially in the in the Charleston area, we know that there's kind of record number of students signing up for these summer schools. So kind of want to see what can a month or two months really do to catch a student up. And I think we're going to keep a close eye, too, on just testing numbers and, and seeing how students are performing after the pandemic. When you listen to superintendents talk about it, there's I think there's a lot of pressure on them and a lot of they really feel the responsibility of this money. And it, it's kind of a once in a lifetime, once in a career opportunity. So that's something we definitely want to keep an eye on just because they've never seen anything like this before. For listeners, for readers wanting to follow along with the coverage, your latest story about this funding and and how districts are planning for it was the second in a new series called Promises. What's kind of the the, the goal and and the scope of what that series will include? One of the biggest things we wanted to do was tell the public, hey, look, be involved. Go to your local school board. Figure out what your local school board is spending this money on. You need to be driving it because there's not enough reporters in this entire state to cover all 79 districts. The real hope is that we can do something transformational if we we don't squander the money, essentially. 
And the Promises series is also kind of a look back at Minimally Adequate, which is a series we did in 2019. And so I think if anyone's interested to know what needs to happen in terms of education reform in South Carolina, um, that's a good place to start because we're really going to be looking at those issues and this money and kind of seeing what school districts are doing to, to remedy some of that. All right, listeners, that's all for today. Follow along with our Promises series to stay up to date on how schools are planning to use this money. We'll leave a link to that series and to our previous series about South Carolina schools, Minimally Adequate, in today's show notes. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for this show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or DM us on Twitter at understandsc. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postingcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.